0: Hello, and welcome to a very spooky episode of Be Zombie Listening. (laughs) Okay, now that the intro has been adequately Halloweenified... In the obligatory fashion, I can talk normally again. Hello, I'm uh, BZ Douglas. This is BZ Listening. And today, my guest is playwright and author Brenton Langle. Brent and I go back nearly uh, 10 years. Uh, I first met him at an open mic in New York. Uh, And and in this episode, we spent a little bit of time catching up and and talking about that and tracking the arc of uh, his writing career. But the main reason I invited Brent onto the show was to talk about his new awesome comic, Snow White Zombie Apocalypse, published by Scout Comics. And I'm going to quote the synopsis from Scout's website now, since uh, I never pass up an opportunity to save myself some time writing these intros. Let me get my movie trailer voice on. Snow White awakens to true love's kiss, 28 days after the zombie apocalypse. With the seven dwarves dead, the quintessential fairy tale princess must join forces with her polyamorous Prince Charming and his tough-as-nails paramour, Rapunzel, to wage a losing battle against death itself. Bound by love and driven apart by jealousy, can this unlikely trio find a way to put aside their differences, or will they be devoured by the reanimated denizens of their once-enchanted kingdom?" Based on the hit play by the same name, Snow White Zombie Apocalypse is a story of deep woods and old magic mixed with a healthy dollop of blood, sex, kung fu, and gender politics. You know, fairy tales as usual. That's fun. I love doing the movie trailer voice. Uh, The comic is available now in shops all over the country, uh, unless it hasn't sold out, which is actually uh, just... Found out, saw from Brent today on Facebook that actually happened at his local comic book store. At first, he was disappointed and thought they didn't even buy it to carry it, and he found out they actually sold out within an hour. So, it's a, it's a hot ticket. Um, so you can buy it in your local store or uh, you can order it online at ScoutComics.com. Brent was also gracious enough to sign and donate a copy that I will be giving away to one lucky Patreon supporter. Uh, If you'd like a chance to win, sign up to support the show at any level at patreon.com slash bzdug, B-Z-D-U-G, and do that before Thursday, November 14th. That's two weeks from today. Uh, On that day, I will print out all the supporters' names, Toss them into one of the many hollowed-out skulls I have lying around the house, and select the winner. And hey, nothing's stopping you from being a shady bastard and just canceling your patronage immediately after you win. So, you know, here's your chance to get a, a $6 comic for $1. Though, if you do that, I will be calling you out for your shady bastardry on a future episode, and you will be canceled as fuck. So, fair warning. Anyway... Thank you so much for listening, and now my interview with Brenton Lang Hell. (laughs) Halloween puns for everyone. I wanted to kind of track back a little bit over your career, I bumped into you, I would say, closing in on, what, 10 years ago at a New York Open Mic, a Penny's Open Mic?
1: Yeah, it would be 10 years ago, um, because, what is it? Are we into, we're into October, right? Yeah. Yeah, I moved up to New York in September uh, of 2009, and it's now October 2019, so yeah, we met um, just 10 years ago.
0: And I'll never forget the poem you read, uh, the – what was it? The Revolutionary, the Vogue Revolutionary or –
1: The Vogue Revolutionary, yeah. (laughs) I still have that. I actually took that line from a Wendell Berry poem, to tell you the truth, and I I expanded on it because I had – been working at Actors Theater of Louisville before I came up, and they did a celebration of Wendell Berry's work where they had actors essentially read and act his poetry. Um, wasn't the best show in the universe, would have been nice to have just done a play, but um, you know, I, what I gotta say is it got me into Wendell Berry, and um, that in turn really began to inform my poems uh when i went to new york because he was the most recent poet that i'd read and to tell you the truth i really found myself um missing kentucky and missing the wilderness and so like i really connected with that once i was in the urban jungle
0: so what brought you to new york do you just have sort of the vague i'm in the creative arts i'm a writer and this is where you go to do your thing or did you have something specific you were setting your sights on
1: Well, I think it was a combination of things. Um, You know, I had had it in my head since college that um, I was eventually going to go to New York or L.A., and I hated the idea of going to L.A. Um, (laughs) So it was sort of like just New York. Um, What had happened – and I've I've told this story before, but – I had been working as a professional actor in and around the Midwest, and my plan was to slowly build my career, and then when I had some cred, move out to New York. Um, what wound up actually happening was was that I was uh, like employed as a full time actor at this place called Shadowbox Cabaret, where we were doing rock and roll and sketch comedy, um, and I wasn't really happy about it, despite the fact that the job sounds really cool but i didn't have really any freedom there was very little room for creativity um like my big bit was to walk across the stage with a giant boombox to riding dirty and drop my pants and that was <laughs> apparently funny yeah
0: <laughs> what I, I, you could do i could do that for years
1: yeah, yeah. Well, it, you you actually might have fit in there a little bit better than me, and I mean that in a very complimentary way. Um, but anyway, like, so what wound up happening was I was feeling, you know, kind of creatively stifled, and I didn't really believe in what I was doing. And then um, a very dear friend of mine, uh, by the name of Adam Redman, uh, just died in his sleep at 25. Like, he, he went to bed one night, didn't wake up the next day, and. It just like my whole world came crashing down around me. I was saying to myself, like, oh, my God, you know, what am am I doing? I'm ignoring all my friends and family so I can be a professional actor. What does that even mean? And in 10 years, I get my boss's job. I don't want my boss's job right now. So um, I took a leave of absence. I called it a sabbatical. I was supposed to do Forbidden Planet, the musical, um, and uh, they were a little annoyed by me because I was always coming up with things that I thought were better, like, just to do in the show, though I, I... I do remember the, the guy who ran the company, um, I made like one suggestion to him, and he was just – he looked at me and was like, that's a really good idea, and actually did it. So I think I kind of impressed him there, but at the end of the day, like, your friend's dead. What Are you, you going to go do a musical? <laughs> so – I hiked the Appalachian Trail, Maine to Georgia, to deal with his death, and then um, shortly thereafter had the plan to move to New York City. And I've saved up for nine months and eventually moved um, uh, from Louisville to uh, New York. And I met you my second night, and that's you know the reason I went out to Penny's actually was I'd done a open mic in Louisville that wasn't nearly as good, but I'd met a few friends there, and I was like, okay, well you know maybe this will keep me sane.
0: So I didn't know that you were more focused initially in your career on acting?
1: Yeah, yeah. It it was weird, too, um, because, like, I'm the guy who, if I play Dungeons and Dragons with you, I always wind up being the DM, but I just want to be a player, (laughs) if that makes sense. Yeah. So, you know, um, I sort of resisted going into writing. I kind of knew from the time I was a really little kid that I was like a really good writer and storyteller. Um, I actually remember sitting down like with my brother and my dad and I just started making up this whole story uh, about various constellations like Orion and uh, Taurus and stuff like and them having like a big story. And my dad was like really impressed by it. And I, I was really little and I was just pulling it, you know, completely out of my butt. <laughs> <laughs> so um, you know, I, I sort of was like, I could always be a writer, but let's try something else first. And so that's why I really tried to be an actor for a while. Um, but when I got to New York, I was just like I thought I was going to do acting, and then, like the second I got into the city, I was suddenly like, "Oh, this is really serious. Okay, time to stop uh, jerking around and to start really going after my my main talent, which was writing."
0: So you didn't um, didn't even like kind of wade into the scene of being a professional actor with auditions and all that.
1: Yeah, didn't try. Um, I think part of it was honestly, you know, I was with Melanie, my girlfriend at the time, and now my wife, and she didn't really like it for me to be away. And, you know, I would have to be away a lot at auditions and rehearsals if I got into anything. But also, like, I had soured on the whole concept of acting um, pretty – like, before I got to the city, before I even realized I'd soured on it. Because, like, the thing that I realized at Shadowbox was, you know – I I was sick and tired of being a part of someone else's vision, Mm. especially a vision that I didn't believe in um, and that I knew I could do better. So I, I feel like that was a big thing that pushed me to write because like the stuff that I always wanted to see on stage And in movies, and it it just wasn't there, especially not in the theater world. You know, I mean, I'm a huge geek. I love, um, like, Lord of the Rings. I'm a huge sucker for a lot of the Marvel movies that are out right now. Um, You know, really, I'm really into, like, Captain America and Thor. And, you know, I wanted to do plays with swords in them. (laughs) <laughs> I wanted to do plays with – I used to go around to everybody in my theater department and be like, oh my god, we should do a kung fu play just with like a bunch of karate in it. And everybody would just look at me like I was completely insane. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I never really liked classic theater. Like I, I found a few plays that I really connect with, but honestly, like a lot of theater is really bad, yeah. and I kind of just fell into it because there was no film program um, at my college.
0: Yeah, and I, I i feel I feel the same way as you with with acting and and or at least with theater coming from it as you know I had some time in in acting. And it wasn't that hard to walk away from because even just at the limited level, I, you know, was pursuing it in college. Like you had, you know, you just had to keep doing shows, whether or not you liked the shows and, Mm -hmm. and things like that. And I started to just see how I'd get burned out on it. And over the years I've really kind of appreciated like walking away and I still love acting, but I only do it when it, it's something I really want to do and when I, you know, I'm, I, I, I feel strongly compelled to go for it. Um, but even then I, even when I really like things, I can't stand the audition process, just the, the, uh, the, o- it, it, the, opaqueness, the opaqueness of it. <laughs> and then some places are just like, they're not even going to call and tell you if you didn't get it, you just find out when they post notices and stuff. And it, it's, it's not something that's really called to me to go back to it. And I think like you said, I, the older I got, the more interested I was in, in creative forms of creative expression that I had more control over, like being a musician, you know, it's like you can be whatever you want. If you're a musician, you can produce that however you like, or I haven't written anything, but I've been very interested in the idea of, yeah, like starting to wade into that medium.
1: Yeah, well, I just remember like the first time I met you. I may have brought this up in the last episode of BZ Listening that I was in, which was one of the early ones. Um, you know, before you got that Robert Evans bump. <laughs> 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 um, but I said, and by the way, that was like the coolest episode. I freaking loved that. Um, it's it's so neat that it's still, uh, you spoke
0: still with my him. number one episode.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, I can see he's a freaking awesome guy. It's it's weird, like how much of an influence he's had on like me through you sometimes i i wonder like just be you know you're the one that got me into cracked which then got me listening to him um and then you know i'm an anarchist today and you know part of that honestly is because i met you um so you know i kind of wonder if you know from a roundabout way i got bread pilled by <laughs> robert <laughs> evans
0: <laughs> i don't know what co- uh, i don't know what color pill he we would be um
1: yeah, well, no, no it's, it's bread pill is the the term for uh, left anarchists because of um, what's oh, his face. Okay. Yeah, because um, uh, Peter Koprotkin wrote the conquest the conquest of bread. <laughs>
0: so, oh, all right.
1: Yeah, they've been called. I don't know the the leftists on like YouTube have been calling it bread tube and bread pill. Though honestly, I think you and I are both more independent thinkers than that.
0: Yeah, I have really no idea what my alignment is. Though I, I definitely tend more towards anarchism the older I get. And just believe that no one should have con- concentrated amounts of power.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's really like – that's how – every time you give a person too much power, they always wind up misusing it one way or another. The um, I, I think I actually read a study, and I don't know how credible it was, but it came out that um, – having power has the same effect on the brain as a traumatic brain
0: injury. (laughs) Oh yeah. 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 I've seen that too. That is, that that isn't a fide study about like just how it, it it manipulates your mind and alters the way your brain works.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Which is something that like, I've never kind of, I like my brain. I like it where it is. So I don't know. I kind of work on that. One of my bigger fears, honestly, is, Possibly because I, you know, started out as an actor and I experienced a lot of pushback creativ- creatively uh, when I wasn't in New York but in the Midwest. So, like for years, like my my greatest fear was that um, I was basically Michael Scott, and I thought all this great stuff about myself, but actually I sucked. <laughs>
0: yeah i think a lot of actors have that 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 is a dark fear i think any everyone if you have that fear it's hopefully means that you're that's not going to happen because i don't think michael scott ever worried that he was michael scott
1: (laughs) no he definitely didn't so i think the fact that we we do worry about that is proof that we're not complete narcissists
0: i I hope so yeah i if i if, if this is what being a narcissist is then man it's I'm pretty down on myself. I don't think I'm awesome.
1: Yeah. Well, I think the narcissism has gotten into a big thing because of the giant freaking narcissist in the white house right now. But uh, I I don't want to get off on a tear about that. I, I guess kind of what I was getting around to, um, was that um, when I had first got to New York, I remember, and I mentioned this on like one of our first episodes, um, I saw you playing, um, oh God, what was it? Slapstick tragedy I think and I think you also did a bluegrass cover of common people uh, At pennies and I remember it was like my first or second night at pennies I just remember seeing that and just being like oh I really want to be friends with that guy (laughs) So I was very happy that you were cool with me when we met
0: (laughs) Yeah, no, I always remember that night because I did do common people and it was the night that I found my Stage growl because the microphone dropped in the middle of the song and i didn't want to stop so i just kept singing and found this guttural much louder vocal range as a result and that's kind of changed like how i you know perform from that night forward so you you kind of caught me like yeah right right at a major pivot point
1: well it was really cool uh just in general that was a good crowd that we had out at Penny's, and you know it got to a point where you know penny had left and me and murdoch were doing work together um i haven't seen him in a while by the way have you heard from him
0: no and and listeners of the show should should know i hope to one day bring john murdoch on he's very hard to get a hold of these days uh he's Probably one of the best comics I I saw during my time in New York and one of the great tragedies of, you know, like there's many, many people I consider. It's almost like tragic that they're only known by these small slivers of like open mic crowds or regional crowds who are just like, oh, man, the world really could have used John Murdoch's voice amplified.
1: It absolutely could have. You know, John John's a comedian. I, I used to describe him. He doesn't have the mohawk anymore, but I used to describe him as like a young, pissed-off George Carlin with a mohawk. Yes. Um, and um, he was one of the people uh, running the mic that BZ and I uh, met each other at. Um, like, he was part of the original, like, artist group. And he was the guy who used to – he was really welcoming to me when I came up there because he was like – hey, you were always here late for work. Would you like me to put your name in the hat uh, early so that you can get like a slot and you're not here till 4 a.m.? And I really appreciated that because it was really cool, um, both because I had no friends in the city at this point. You know, I was completely on my own and I'd never really had an artist community that actually accepted me. And the the fact that, you know, John, who was basically one of the elites at that point, um, was going out of his way to make sure that I had a slot, that was – really cool of him like he he did not have to do that
0: yeah i really th- that whole Mike and that that whole scene at least in that moment in time was so incredibly nurturing i know for me and for a lot of people like like exactly what you're saying as far as people looking out for each other being encouraging and um
1: that should actually wrap around because um you know one of the reasons we were doing this episode was um i've got a comic book coming out um which is uh, Snow White Zombie Apocalypse, uh, which is based on, it, it's an adaptation of a play that I wrote when I was at Penny's. And in fact, um, I think in my head, when I first like wrote the show, I had cast it with um, like John was playing Prince Charming in my head while I was writing it. And I think Killy was playing um, uh, killer Kelly Dwyer, who's an excellent performance artist. She was playing Snow White and Penny was playing um, Rapunzel. And I I believe that was the who we had read uh, when we did do it like the its very first reading on that stage and under St. Mark's Theater.
0: And before, uh, yeah, I definitely want to get into Snow White Zombie. And, and that reminds me too. You also you did a bit of the work of kind of covering what was special about that place in time with your play Mike, which mm-hmm. to this day is I I hold up as one of my great accomplishments is getting to play a character that was somewhat based on me.
1: Oh, yeah. So, uh, listeners, so, uh, you know, I've been working as a playwright in New York, you know, for the past 10 years or so, and recently I've moved out of the city. But um, I would say my third play that I ever wrote was called Mike. Uh, It was about the New York City underground open mic scene. It was basically kind of an ode to all of these incredible artists that. You know, I found myself accepted by um, that. Then played in the Fringe Festival, and uh, BZ played a character in it. Tem Noon was in that, which was a friend of ours who played the bongos, or nope, a Jim Bay. I'll always remember that because I wrote that into the play. Um, (laughs) And it was basically kind of a fictionalized version of the drama that had ultimately destroyed. Like it, it actually destroyed the inner circle of the the main like kind of artists behind the mic and then i kind of dramatized it in a more positive way uh which led to its own little explosion of drama with a bunch of people mad at me and Mm -hmm. uh, other people who were really happy that i'd written the play and uh were happy to be a part of it so that was fun
0: (laughs) (laughs) well that's that's a good lesson i'm sure you have to learn if you're going to write something about actual people that you can't control their reaction to it
1: yeah, you really can't. And you know, for a while before I'd really learned like at this point in my career, I'm a very seasoned writer. So, you know, I have learned how to create a story from whole cloth. Uh, early on, like I just sort of sat down in front of a computer and just would let it flow. And I had just happened to be very talented at that. Um, And so, like, what would come out most of the time was, like, really good and I could make it work just because my brain worked in that manner. Um, But I didn't know what I was doing or how I was doing it or why it was good. And um, so what I would do was when I didn't know what to do with characters uh, and I wasn't sure, like, what was realistic and what wasn't was I'd just base it on people that I know. Um, (laughs) A lot of writers do that, especially when they're very early because there's just like a part of a writer's brain that like the worst thing in the world can be going on. Like you've gotten into like a horrible car accident and um, you're sitting there – this is the example Neil Gaiman gives. And you're looking at exactly the way the light bounces off the shattered glass on the pavement between like the blood and everything and you're just like, remember this. I can use this. (laughs) (laughs) Like. That is, like, the writer's brain.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it sounds similar to, you know, like, the kind of consciousness you'd have to have to be a decent stand-up, I imagine.
1: Yeah, a decent stand-up, or a decent artist in general, like... There's um, I don't know, I, I remember my therapist once told me he thought I was on like a higher level of consciousness um, than like your average person, and I, I'll let the listeners and the other people that I deal with decide with that. My therapist was probably trying to build me up. but you know, the point is is that um, when you are kind of engaging your empathy and when you're trying to kind of step back, from the world so that you can create art about it, you know, it requires you to stand outside of the world and to sometimes stand outside of yourself, um, which is really weird and also very Buddhist. (laughs) So like, it's, it's kind of interesting in the fact that the struggle to create great art is, is very much in the sense of it's a struggle against your own ego as much as a struggle fueled by your own ego.
0: So, take me through. What was the impetus for um, Snow White Zombie, and what was the the full incarnation of the stage play? How how it first came about.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. So this was also.
0: I think we're. I've abbreviated the name. It's Snow White Zombie Apocalypse.
1: Well, So Snow White Zombie is the title of the play World. Snow okay. White Zombie Apocalypse is what I added for the um, play that eventually – like the full-length play that was in the Fringe Festival. So the very first play was titled Snow White Zombie. It was a 10-minute. Um, and then I was like, oh, I'm going to expand it. So Snow White Zombie colon Apocalypse. <laughs> and then I just left that for the uh, comic book. Um, but yeah, it was a play on white zombie, obviously. <laughs> nice. Um, Yeah. So, I mean, Snow White Zombie came about in a very uh, interesting way. I had moved to New York. I had two plays under my belt. They were both full length. One was 90 minutes. One was two hours. Uh, The first one was called Trojan Men, which has yet to be fully produced, but uh, some monologues from it. It, it, It's gotten partial productions and readings, and some monologues from it are being published, um, which is really exciting. Those are going out, so maybe a college will decide to produce it. But that was about what it's really like to be in a fraternity because I was in a fraternity in college and, spoiler, it didn't go well. (laughs) Um, And then um, I also had North to Maine, which was the first play ever about hiking the Appalachian Trail, which is kind of like my second most famous work now that, uh, you know, um, we've got... After All is still about to come out, but Snow White Zombie, I think, has eclipsed it just because of uh, the comic book. Um, So... What had happened was, so I had those two plays under my belt. I thought I'd come to New York and I had applied to Juilliard and NYU and the New School, and I'm like, oh, I'm going to get into one of these great programs and that's going to be my foot in the door. And they all rejected me across the board. And like, there I am in New York. It's my first month. Um, I'm being kept sane by an open mic. I'm doing uh, fundraising for Carnegie Hall to keep the bills paid. And um, like, Someone at Carnegie Hall told me about a play contest, like a new play competition, um, or it may have actually been somebody from Juilliard who told – it was either someone at Carnegie Hall or it was somebody from Juilliard who like, I was still in contact with even though they had rejected me. But they're like, oh, this uh, now defunct company called the New York Theater Experiment, they're having a 24-hour play competition. You should enter it. And it was called Fairy Tale SmackDown. And It was literally like the entire play had to be written, rehearsed, and produced within 24 hours. So um, I went and kind of sat down and started reading about the stuff that you had to use. And I had had this idea that I wanted to do for a while, which was going to be Zombie Shakespeare. Because there's that scene in The Simpsons where, like, Homer is going through and he's shooting all the historical zombies. And he's like, you know, eat (laughs) lead Einstein, shows over Shakespeare, and he shoots Shakespeare in the chest with a shotgun. And Shakespeare, zombie Shakespeare goes, is this the end of zombie Shakespeare? And so, like, I'd had the idea, but I was like, well, I can't really write iambic pentameter. (laughs) So the idea of mashing up zombies with something heavily theatrical was already in my head, and so when this fairy tale smackdown hit, I got a couple of like a prompt with some things that I had to use, and I just started writing, and freaking lightning struck. Like there, I, I tend to be a pretty good writer, but like this was like this was my. Uh, Okay, Greg Kodas, the guy who um, wrote Urinetown, he's in my karate uh, dojo. We're actually both black belts and became black belts around the same time. Um, And we fought a few times. I've been trying to kick him in the head for a few years. Um, (laughs) He told me that when you're talking about genius, there's a big mistake that our culture has. And that's that they think a genius is a person. Like if you are, but what a genius is, according to him, is it, it is a, it's not a person; it's a thing that you have. It's a thing you have to listen to, and to the key to creating great art is is not to be a genius, but to listen to your genius when it uh, when it comes knocking. So, um, I just like really, the words were flowing, and I had a lot of uh, deep like emotional things that I was going through. I was in New York city. I, my uh, girlfriend of a year had just moved up to be with me. I had no idea what was going to happen. Uh, I had no idea if I would be able to continue to exist or if I'd get like absorbed by the city to a certain extent and just find myself working for some, you know, asshole like I had been before. And, um, I just had the image of Prince charming coming in, uh, and kissing Snow White and waking her up, but the entire world is wrong, you know? And and that was really kind of like the core of the story. It's very much like a story about the shock that somebody feels when they have left their hometown. When they, there's like once you grow up essentially and um, you start to realize that the world is not necessarily what you thought it was or what your parents taught you, when that bubble pops It is painful and frightening. And it's not entirely unlike waking up in a forest filled with zombies. (laughs) So I kind of played with that and um, also, you know, did my best to make it funny.
0: So do you think that having with the doing this in a competition, that urgency behind it's got to be done this fast and the fact that they frame it for you, like right about this? You're not it's not a blank canvas That had to have helped a bit. It
1: did. And also, you know, I'd read uh, the Neil Gaiman story, Snow Glass Apples, which is not his best short story. But um, that was kicking around in my head. The idea of doing the zombie thing was kicking around in my head. The idea of a kung fu play. Was, was knocking around in my head. And so, yeah, I just started writing. And I remember um, I, I sent off the thing and I, I was so used to rejection at the time because I'd sent, anybody who does this, you know, you get rejected. You could take the, if you're fresh out of college and you write the best play in the freaking universe, like something that's just like absolutely transcendent and you hand it to a company that's looking for a new play, you will not get that play made like almost you just won't because But what if my my dad
0: owns a dealership or something?
1: If your dad owns a dealership, then you'll get that play made, but it'll be shit. (laughs) 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 Um, Yeah. So like, um, you know, I had been so used to rejection that I actually sent the play off and I was like, holy crap. I knew like how good it was at the time. I was like, this is really good. I have no idea. And like, um, I I sent it off and I'm just sitting there and waiting for it to come back and waiting for it to come back over the next you know couple of hours. And the email comes back and I start reading the email and I'm like, oh, man, fuck this. Fuck this organization. Fuck everything about this. There's no way. I can't believe they said, no wait, they said yes. <laughs> <laughs> and like, um, they were just like, yeah, this is a great play. We want to produce it. And so I'm like, oh, oh shit. So, you know, they went, they took the play. The actors were literally working with cardboard props. Um, I met a couple of them. I don't, I'm maybe in contact with only one of them since that. Um, but I do remember like having to go down to a place like in Trebekah, I think it was, and walk up a bunch of flights to get into the, th- the studio that they had rented to do this, uh, 10 minute, like this, uh, fairy tale smackdown. And, and like, um, They were performing the play and people came up to me afterwards. I I don't know if it was the actors or people in uh, the audience. I think it was the actors, but they came up to me afterwards and they were like, oh my God, this is like an amazing play. This reads like something somebody who went to Yale wrote. And I'm like, well, tell Yale about that because they rejected me. (laughs) Um yeah, so I mean that was where it started, and then uh, I, based on something someone—that's what it was with Carnegie Hall. Someone at Carnegie Hall told me about the Estrogenius Festival, which was a celebration of female voices. I took the script to them after the Fairy Tale Smackdown, and they selected it, um, which was really incredible. It was great because I'm a dude, <laughs> you know. Yeah, but you but, have a
0: wonderful female voice.
1: Oh well, thank you. Yeah, I like to—I like to think um, I've. I, I like to think that I, I spend enough time trying to put myself into somebody else's shoes that I can somewhat get my head wrapped around the uh, the experience of fifty one percent of the human race. Oh, I just uh, meant
0: I just meant singing. You're absolutely shit at understanding the human experience of a woman, but
1: I, I sound very pretty. Well, yeah. that's good to know. <laughs> um I, I got long hair so maybe someone saw me from behind and thought i was a chick anyway um yeah so they put on the play and it wound up winning audience's choice um what was i will, will always be really proud about actually was um the night that it won like you the way you win audiences choice is people um give dollars and each dollar is one vote for your show and i remembered i went and i I gave a twenty for my show, and I was like, "Oh, um, like I hope I'm not cheating too much because it's my show. Maybe I shouldn't put any money in here." <laughs> well, it turned out that another play, someone had dropped three hundred and sixty dollars on just like one person had, and we still beat them.
0: Wow!
1: Yeah, so it was. It, it was really great, and the, the production was done by uh, Lita Tremblay, uh, who I've worked with only that once, and I really want to work with again, because she's an absolutely brilliant director. Um, and um, yeah, we got to cast the play, and she was the one that had suggested that I work in um, the fight scene before it, because like it, the Astro show had about a 20-minute slot, and the play that I had written had really been um, only about 10 minutes um so we added it and we tried to find a choreographer and couldn't find a choreographer so i did it and um luckily i had a background in martial arts and people got really excited by uh the fight sequence that me and my roommate at the time did um and um yeah i mean the astro genius festival that was really one of those times where everything absolutely came together the direction the actors the costuming like looking back over the 10 years that I have worked like I've had a lot of great plays and I've worked with a lot of great people but again just like the the play being written the way that it was that first full production was really lightning in a bottle
0: do you want to just lay out like kind of like the the, the setting that you're talking about here with this play because yeah this is the danger in like two people talking who know everything about what they're talking about and I'm an amateur interviewer <laughs> I want to make sure we, we've been talking about Snow White uh its yeah. production for a while but um yeah what's the shorthand like you know what premise to the play yeah
1: so the 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 premise of snow white zombie apocalypse for those of you who don't know is snow white wakes up to prince charming's kiss 28 days after the zombie apocalypse the dwarves are the seven dwarves are dead um the prince is polyamorous and uh she has to team up with um their tough as nails like paramour rapunzel um and uh the three of them basically have to lean on each other to survive in this incredibly vicious world. Um, so, you know, maybe we can add a little bit or just cut this part to the beginning of the episode, just in case somebody isn't 100% sure about it. It's be it's been a, a short play. Also, a two hour play, and then uh, it is now being published by Scout Comics uh, as a 44 page one shot that will hopefully lead either to a longer comic series or a television series or movie. Um, you know, it, it really, I really want to tell this whole story, and we're just trying to figure out the best way to do that right now.
0: Yeah, so as it's gotten bigger in scope, how does that mean you have a lot more questions to answer? Because initially, if you're just like, oh, I want to put together something that's, you know, this short piece, play with, play with the, the genre of fairy tales and like, let's uh, inject zombies. If you're getting into a longer form thing, then you get into like the world building and like, oh, where did these zombies come from? And what are all the other fairy tales this can bump up against? And how does that happen?
1: Well, I mean, the zombies actually came from, spoiler, uh, a birthday party. Um, <laughs> one fairy was left out, and she got all kinds of butt hurt. And before you knew it, bam! Zombie apocalypse. Um, <laughs> which you know, it, I was playing off the um, uh, Sleeping Beauty story because the the black fairy was left out of the. Birthday party where everyone gets served in, on gold, and she's really mad about it. That was one of the things that really actually worked about combining fairy tales with zombies, and um, in the sense that, like fairy tales, are already super dark. And really, because they're so old, they they don't make sense in a lot of ways because of the, just the retelling and retelling and retelling and the changing of the world. You know, little references and stuff no longer have anything to do with anything. So you go back and you reread the original fairy tales. Like the first thing that you realize is is like, man, these are gross. Um, and then the second thing you're like, man, these are ridiculous. <laughs> um, and then, of course, you you add on, like, all the programming with Walt Disney, especially, like, the 1950s. And, you know, cultural criticism naturally works its way in. And ideas like, do we see really see women this way? Uh, do we really see men this way? Um, you know, how should you raise your kids? Like, because these are stories for kids. And um, so I, I think that all in all, like, it's kind of a natural thing it's it, it, snow white zombie is a natural mashup um that brings in lots and lots of different uh genres uh that then you know allow me to play because i've i'm as i mentioned at the beginning of this thing i'm a total geek and i love fantasy um you know so i got to essentially write a dark fantasy with magical elements and commentary on uh disney and society Um, and then also like just in general, you know, just have a lot of fun while at the same time talking about something important.
0: So are you going into this knowing like with the the comic book, is it a limited series? Like you, is it finite or is it something set up to go on in perpetuity?
1: I mean, that's really going to depend upon, like, how the comic book is received. It's coming out on the 30th of this month. Um, You know, if people really love it and uh, we get a lot of pressure uh, and a lot of enthusiasm to continue it as a comic series, it may very well get continued. Um, Scout Comics, the company that is publishing it, is also really, um, like, They have a huge emphasis on film and television adaptations of their properties, so that is a possibility as well. Um, And I think, like with the book, it's going—it's already attracted some interest from Hollywood. um, You know, but that whole thing is kind of really a crapshoot. You know, it's the same thing like when The Walking Dead was trying to be made. People were like, "Well." okay could you do the walking dead but like what if it's a detective series and he's investigating zombie crimes
0: <laughs> you know?
1: yeah so you know it we may go in that direction we may continue with the comic book one of the big things that kind of it's really going to depend upon um you know if I can get my artist to continue doing it, um, if we can get a book out on like a set schedule to where people don't forget about it while it, while we're creating it, um, and like, um, or if you know, I move to another artist or something. So, and I want to make this clear, by the way, the guy that I'm working with, Hyondo Park, is freaking amazing. Um, and I am I'm just so lucky to be working with him. I just, you know, I, to tell you the truth, I haven't talked with him about it. and I don't know if he's even up to do another book at this point.
0: So was your process, um, did you have to completely go back to, re- like, how you wrote this with the constraints of theater to now I can do anything that can fit on a page? which in theory is anything.
1: Yeah. I mean, it was something that I was set up to do. Um, because like the single biggest artistic influence on my life besides my parents, uh, is probably Bill Watterson, uh, who did Calvin and Hobbes. Um, for the longest time, I like, I thought I was going to be a cartoonist. Um, I had my own comic strip that I wrote in, uh, like elementary school named IQ. Um, about like this kid that was just like way too smart for the people around him. (laughs) And um, like from that um, I wrote other, like I, I was a, published comic artist in college um i I used to do um political cartoons for like my my local college paper so i was already able to really kind of see how this would function on the page i was also like a big reader of graphic novels and comics at the time i was a big fan of uh, robert kirkman actually i'd read both invincible and the walking dead um And uh, I also had read Bone, um, been really into some of uh, Frank Miller's earlier work. Um, And so like, between that and the fact that when I started writing, I was already sort of moving in the direction of uh, screenplay writing, and screenplay writing is very visual. um, I kind of naturally took to uh, comic script writing in a way that I didn't really to theater necessarily, because like when I first did theater, I would like write out everything in a scene, you know, exactly how somebody moved or what they what, what, what they were doing or how the scene worked. And I used to get a bunch of pushback on that and said, you know, don't write that. Just write the dialogue and let everybody else figure everything out. So, yeah, I, I was kind of um, I was set to sort of write uh, in the comics format.
0: So when is the book going to come out and when is it going to be available and where can people come find it?
1: So it is going to be available on the 30th of this month. Uh, So October 30th it's coming out literally the day before Halloween. Uh, It is a 44-page one-shot from Scout Comics. You should be able to find it in your local comic store, provided that uh, your comic store ordered it. Now we've gotten, I I don't know the numbers yet. I don't know how many comic stores ordered it, but I mean, it's a zombie book. It looks great. It's coming out on the, uh, the day before Halloween. So hopefully, and, and it's being like, um, there's only one company that really sends comic books to comic stores, which is diamond. They're the only major distributor. They're the ones distributing it. So, like, every single comic shop in the country had the opportunity to buy it. If they bought it, it'll be on the shelves. If not, you can go to the Scout Comics website. Just Google, like, Scout Comics and Snow White Zombie, and it'll be right there.
0: Yeah, and what, where else can people find all your stuff, Brent?
1: Yeah. Um, So if you're interested in looking into me, uh, my name is Brenton Lengel, B-R-E-N-T-O-N-L-E-N-G-E-L. You just Google my name. I'm literally the only Brenton Lengel in the world. Uh, My website is Uh, www.brentonlengel.com. Uh, there's a lot of stuff up on that. Uh, you can find me as Brent Lengel on Facebook. I may or may not friend you, uh, at Brenton Lengel on Twitter and the Twitter for snow white Zombie is at snow white bones, all one word. Um, and you can get updates about that and my other projects
0: all right thanks brent that's been great and uh we look forward to hearing from you in the future and blah, blah. i'm gonna button it all up i i, I usually i'm bad at in, i'm bad at intros and extros exits yeah.
1: <laughs> that's all right you can make a joke out of it like robert evans